music. Hey, it's great to be with all of you, and I'm excited to get into our text, Matthew chapter 19. But before I do, I have two announcements. It's going to take probably about five minutes to get through both of these, but they are both uh, significantly important. Uh, You may remember earlier this year, I preached a series on ACAC DNA, and we went through the five markers of our DNA. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you a pop quiz, although I should. Um, if you're here and part of ACAC family, but one of those markers is that we are a diverse community of faith. And our very mission as a church and our calling is to follow Jesus. We follow Jesus in diverse community. And on that weekend, when I preached about kingdom diversity, biblical diversity, I, I communicated to all of you that we were beginning to have a biblical diversity committee. And so for the last several months, we've been working with our elders to go through what that looks like and what will be the purpose and the plan and how are we going to be intentional about biblical diversity. And all in all, that is why we created a biblical diversity community, a committee rather. The biblical diversity committee at ACAC was formed to maintain intentionality and our mission of following Jesus in diverse community. And not to, re-pre- to re-preach the entire message, but if you read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will find God's intentionality of diversity in his kingdom. From creation to redemption to adopting a family, even in the New Testament where there were church issues and one specifically when it came to discrimination, the apostles were intentional about solving that problem. And if you go to the book of Revelation, one day when we get to heaven, every nation, every tongue, every tribe will be represented. And so my announcement today is that we have formulated that and there is a flyer that is available at guest services and at the Information Center, many of you expressed a desire to be on that Biblical Diversity Committee. And so we are at a point now where we are looking for congregants, members of our congregation, to serve on this committee. And so if you are interested in that or that was part, um, you reached out to us and say, I'd like to know more about that. I just want you to know this form is there. It is also on our website. So you can go to our website and find that. If you have any questions, Pastor Ross Owens, one of our executive pastors, is our staff liaison and is leading that and has done a great job. And so wanted you to know that we are looking for committee members to be a part of that now. Another announcement that I'm really excited about 
is that beginning this weekend and going through the month of August, we are going to be receiving a special offering for Bongalow Hospital. That may sound familiar to many of you because it is a missions organization's hospital, rather, in Gabon, Africa, that we have worked with for years, years upon years here at ACAC. I had the privilege of being there in March. In fact, my daughter is there right now and will be coming home at the end of August. But while we were there, um, the medical director, who is really close to this church, she reached out to me recently and said, Pastor Allen, we have uh, a great need at Bongalow Hospital. And so they need right now a 15 passenger van. And let me explain why they need this. So at Bongalow Hospital, not only are there missionaries from all over the world that are serving at this hospital, there are local Gabonese people who are serving as nurses, as doctors, and many of them live miles away. Well, on a normal day, when they get to work, they take taxis. But in the last month or so, these taxis have been eliminated. So employees are walking miles upon miles. And because it's the case, many times they're showing up three hours late to work. And so what the Renee and the medical staff have done is they took the one vehicle they have, which is, I believe, an eight-passenger SUV, and they have jammed-packed as many employees as they can. And I think we have a picture of what it looks like. So there are, you'll see some of these employees from Bongalow Hospital jammed back into a back of, back of a vehicle. And she asked me, is there any way that ACAC could help? And I said, Renee, I know the hearts of our people. And so what I would love us to do is for, again, starting this weekend and through August, um, I would love for us to receive a special offering. And if God moves it upon your heart to give, I would love for us to buy them a 15 passenger van to get their employees to and from work. One other thing that we are coupling with that, when I was in March, and I believe they have another picture of this, uh, they're gonna show you a pastor that I met. His name is Pastor Daniel. And Pastor Daniel pastors the church that is right there on the property of Bongalow Hospital. You can see uh, we're there together. Pastor Daniel, um, the church that is right there at Bongalow was about eight to 900 people pre-COVID. And when COVID happened, just like here, um, they weren't able to meet. He would walk from house to house to minister to people. And I'm telling you, when I was in his office, I was pretty convicted um, because I wasn't walking to a lot of your, your homes. And he has no vehicle. And so when I, when I was there, I asked, and um, the people there that were working at the hospital, and they knew Pastor Daniel, they said a motorcycle would be the best thing for him to get around. Now, I tried telling my wife that every lead pastor needs a motorcycle. She didn't buy it, but I digress. So here's what I would love to do. I believe that um, just with our generosity and hearts, we can purchase a 15 passenger van and a motorcycle for Pastor Daniel. How many think that's a good idea? 100, 200, 300, 400, I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. So altogether, $25,000 would get both of these. And so it's okay if you're not prepared to give today, um, this weekend we'll begin that and then we'll remind you through the month of August, but this beginning this weekend and through the month of August, I would love it if we could just raise $25,000 to do that for Bongalow Hospital. You can uh, go to our website. There's, um, you can designate your giving. If you, those of you that are familiar how to do that, they put Bongalow van and motorcycle. You can designate it there. Just write on the memo of your check. If you want to write a check, Bongalow Hospital, you can put it in the boxes there and you can even text to give. But those are two really uh, just important things. The biblical diversity community that is up and running now and looking for members and then the Bongalow offering. All right, Whew. I'm ready to get. Open your Bibles if you have them to Matthew chapter 19. 
I am so excited for this text. I hope that you have enjoyed um, tackling some of the tough talk of Jesus. I have as well. And so right, off to the, right out, out of the gate, um, we're going to look at this really perplexing statement that Jesus makes about rich people. And it's probably a verse that you are familiar with, but they're going to put it up here on the screen. If you have your Bibles, again, if you've already opened them, Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read um, or look at, I'll read, verse 23 and 24. So Jesus says this, he said to his disciples, I tell you the truth. It is very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, I'll say it again. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. He said, what? Now, for most of us, we're, you know, you may not consider yourself rich. You're like, okay, he's talking about those people that have hundreds, thousands, millions, whatever it may be in their bank account. He's talking about the Bill Gates or whoever in the world. But let me ask you this. What does it mean to be rich? Who is rich? You see, we tend to think, as I said, of those people far more as rich than us. Our tendency will be to think of the millionaires and billionaires, to think of those who lead Fortune 500 companies. But I'm going to challenge you tonight to reset your idea of wealth here today. I looked up some statistics earlier today that I wanna show you and share with you. And I tried to be as accurate as possible and to fact check these. Um, But worldwide statistics show, in fact, you are probably one of the world's wealthiest people, even though you may not think it or feel feel like it. Listen to some of these statistics. The median income of a typical family in the United States is $47,000. Okay, here in the U.S., the median, the median income of a typical family is $47,000. Do you know what the median income of a typical family is worldwide? $850. The typical American earns 10 times that of a typical person worldwide. And if that doesn't register with you yet, or if you haven't connected the dots or have been convicted, this statistic should. There are three billion, with a B, three billion people in the world today that live on less than $2 a day. Three billion people in the world that live on less than $2 a day. Today, my wife and I took a bike ride went to the strip and I bought an iced Americano that was more than $2, cost more than $2. And there are 3 billion people that live on less than that in a day. All of us could probably go to our car and my guess is if you looked in the seat cushions or underneath, underneath the floor mats, we might be able to scrounge up $2 worth of change. And there are 3 billion people in the world that live on less than that a day. Here's the point. When Jesus talks about the rich people, We often think of everyone else other than us. But the reality is, each and every one of us are rich. When Jesus compares the rich to camels, he's really talking about us. Let me tell you, we are the camels. Look at the person beside you and say, you're a camel. Now don't tell them they look like a camel or smell like a camel. They are a camel. How many get the point? 
So when we talk about rich, when Jesus calls out the rich people and them being hard to get into the kingdom of heaven, he's really talking about us. So we're going to dive a little deeper into what that means. Now, we just read two verses in Matthew chapter 19. But as I've talked about before, when we interpret the tough things that Jesus says, we need to look at the entire context. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to read this um, entire portion of Scripture, starting at verse 16. In your Bibles, there's probably a little title that says the rich man or the rich young ruler. So Matthew chapter 19, verse 16, I want to read the entire text and the story that is happening when Jesus said those words. So here we go. Someone came to Jesus with this question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Why ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. But to answer your question, if you want to receive eternal life, keep the commandments. Which ones, the man asked. Jesus replied, you must not murder, you must not commit adultery, you must not steal, you must not testify falsely, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. I've obeyed all these commandments, the young man replied. What else must I do? Jesus tells him, if you want to be perfect, go and sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when the young man heard this, he went away sad for he had many possessions. Then Jesus says to his disciples, I tell you the truth, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll say it again. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it is impossible. But with God, everything is possible. Now, one of the reasons, kind of a side note here, the the reasons why the disciples were astounded when they said, uh, when Jesus said it, it's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Because in Jesus's day, wealth was looked at as a blessing from God. So the disciples are looking at Jesus going, Jesus, if you're saying this man who's wealthy, who by us, that means he is blessed by God. If he can't enter heaven, then how do any of us have a chance? And that's when Jesus says, well, humanly it's possible, but with God, all things are possible. So here's the thing. This story is not a parable. It's not a make-believe story. It's an actual encounter with a real person. And we know this because it's told in the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in the writing, it makes it obvious that this is a narrative account. Now, in each of these, a man comes to Jesus with a question about salvation. And if we read the other accounts of the story, such as in Luke or as in Mark, specifically with Luke. Luke, by the way, was a physician. And if you read the gospel of Luke and you pay attention, Luke, uh, with Luke, details mattered. And that's hence why he was a physician. So in gospels, in Luke's gospel, he takes a great deal of pride in making sure that all the details are there. And so we ask the question, well, who is this man? Who was this man that's coming to Jesus inquiring about eternal life? And here's what we know about this man. First of all, we know he was young. Most likely this man was probably between 20 and 40 years old. We also know that he was some type of a religious leader. Luke's gospel tells us that. He possibly could have been a Pharisee. 
Because remember, Jesus questions him on following the law and, and this man knew the law. And so it's, it could be possible that he was a Pharisee because he followed the law. The other thing we know about this man is that he was rich. He was wealthy, he had many possessions. And he is one of the few people in all of the Bible who come to Jesus and have an, has an encounter with Jesus and ended up not following him. So at the end of the day, we know that this man is young, he's a religious leader, and he's wealthy. So this wealthy young leader is seeking Jesus about salvation. Awesome. Praise God. His heart is searching because he knows that something is missing in his life. And this is where he needs to be. This is where we need to be, coming to the Lord with what is missing in our life. But unfortunately, like so many people today, this man wants to know what he needs to do. He says, what must I do to spend eternity in heaven? Now, Jesus does immediately go to obedience. Jesus doesn't minimize or downplay the importance of his followers obeying God's word. On the contrary, it's the first thing Jesus addresses, being obedient. So Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. So if you want salvation, if you want to follow me, he goes through some of the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't steal, don't get false testimony and honor your mother and father. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the response to this rich young ruler pretty astounding. The rich religious uh, young man says, check, boom, I've done all of those things. He literally says, I have obeyed all of these commandments. Now, that's a pretty bold statement to make to Jesus. You know, one would think that Jesus would immediately engage with him as he did with the Samaritan woman at the well. You remember that? When, when Jesus read the woman's mail and she's like, he's like, well, I know you're living, you've lived, you've had five husbands and you're living with a man now who's not your husband. Jesus could have easily done that with this young guy. Like, yeah, you've said you've followed all the commandments, but what about this? What about this? What about this? But he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus is focused on the most important thing, not the man's outward performance, but rather the inward values of the rich young ruler. You see, it was not the actions of this rich, young, wealthy religious leader that was holding him back from salvation. It was something far deeper. It was something internal in his heart. There was something in his heart that was holding him back from salvation. And as I taught last week, and as we said during our time of worship, Jesus is relentless. He is relentless about addressing the things in our life that we value more than him. So Jesus goes directly to the ruling God of this young man's life, which is his wealth, his riches, and his possessions, his money. And Jesus tells this rich young ruler, if you want to be perfect, this is what Jesus calls this man to do, go and sell all your possessions. Sell everything you have and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Do that, then come and follow me. Now remember, Luke tells us that this wealthy young man was a religious leader. Therefore, as a religious person, he most certainly would have given to the poor in his time. He would have given to the poor as one of the pillars of piety in Judaism. 
This is something that would have been a regular part of his spiritual discipline, being a religious man. So he would have given to poor people. It's not like he wouldn't have done that before. This was nothing new. But Jesus is saying all of it. Sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. Then come and follow me. So what is this man's response to Jesus' challenge to exchange all of his wealth for eternity in heaven? It is one of the most heartbreaking verses in all of Scripture. Here's what happens to the young man. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, for he had many possessions. I love what Mark's gospel says. If you look in the gospel of Mark, the same story, Mark says, the man's face fell. His face fell. You could hear or see or read the exhale. It's like, And the man walks away knowing that his decision is going to have eternal consequences. And yet he still can't let go. We were just singing, you can have it all. You can have it all. And the young man says, Jesus, I can't give you my possessions. I can't give you my wealth. And he walks away sad. For this rich, young religious leader, wealth had become the ruling God of his life. Money and possessions had become the means to his personal identity, power, purpose, and meaning in life. It had become his God. Sure, he had given to the poor. He'd given to charity. He'd probably given to his church, the temple. But it was out of abundance. And it most likely had given him a sense of personal pride. But Jesus calls him to exchange the God of his life for following him as the one true God. And this young man knows that Jesus has pinpointed what was lacking in his life. His wealth had captivated his heart and he can't bring himself to give it all up for Jesus. And so then we come to the verse in our text that we have wrestled with. With the man walking away with his face down and being sad, Jesus then turns to his disciples and he says, I tell you the truth, it's very hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And then he says this hyperbole that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Now, why would Jesus say that? What's the deal with camels? Well, there was a hyperbole, much like when we say it's raining cats and dogs. How many know it's not literally raining cats and dogs? It's a sarcastic statement. Well, at that time in Jesus's day, there was a statement that said it's easier for an elephant to go through the eye of the needle than for something to happen. Well, they didn't have elephants in Judea. The largest animal where Jesus and his followers lived was a camel. So Jesus takes this hyperbole statement that was familiar in culture and he compares it to a wealthy person going to heaven. And the point that Jesus is making is that wealth can be a drug that fools people into thinking they don't need God. If we back it up even further, if we look at some of the text and what's happening in the Bible, even before this story of the rich young man, we're going to find another teaching of Jesus that relates to this, one that you're probably familiar with. So immediately before the Bible tells us in Matthew 19 about the rich young ruler, in the same chapter, there are some parents that brought their kids to Jesus. How many remember this story? Okay, parent, anybody with me? 
You remember it. Okay, a few of you do. Just make sure. So parents bring some of their young kids to Jesus. And these parents, want, they want Jesus to lay hands and pray and bless them. And the disciples are scolding the parents for bringing these kids. And Jesus um, scolds the disciples. And he says, no. And then right here in Matthew 19, verse 13, Jesus says, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. And then he goes on and he says, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to those who are like these children. You see the connection? So Jesus connects the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He says, the kingdom of God are like children. That happens right before the encounter with the rich young ruler. Okay, what does that have to do with anything you may ask? Think about the relationship between children and money. The relationship between children and money. One, children don't have any money. <laughs> okay, number one, they don't have any money. Children are completely reliant upon others. Kids are completely reliant upon their parents. They don't have the means. They don't have the wealth. They don't have the resources to accomplish the things that they want. They have no power. They have no defense. They have no authority or no influence. And Jesus knows, here's the point. Jesus knows that wealth and riches can give his followers, his disciples, a false sense of all of this. See, with wealth and money, we often think that we don't have to rely on anyone. <clears throat> when we have lots of money in our bank account, we can think things like, well, I've gotten myself this far, or I've accomplished this, I have all that I need and all that I want. With money, we can buy power. With money, we can buy authority. With money, we can buy influence, but a child can't. And here is the point that Jesus is making and the implication for all of us today. We must be diligent to prevent the temporary blessing of wealth to displace the permanent blessing of eternal life with God. If we're not careful, even as Christ followers, we will allow the temporary blessing of money, of wealth, and possessions of toys to displace or replace the permanent blessing of eternal life with God. For some of you listening to this, whether it's online or here in the room, God has blessed you greatly financially. We've already talked about all of us in worldly standards are blessed. Some of you are doubly or triply blessed, if you will. And you're struggling with this message. You're struggling with my words because maybe you relate to this wealthy young man. And I want you to know there are two things that Jesus is not saying. Here's what Jesus is not saying in this teaching. Jesus is not saying that only the poor can follow him. There were rich people in the Bible who followed Jesus. Did you know that? Let me give you a few examples. Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph of Arimathea, he's in the Bible. He was part of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin were the religious leaders who called for Jesus' crucifixion. But Joseph of Arimathea was opposed to this. And he actually was a follower of Jesus. And when Jesus was crucified, at great risk to Joseph, he goes to Pilate and asks 
for Jesus's body, to bury Jesus's body. The Bible says that he was wealthy and that he was good and upright. And following the death of Jesus, he takes Jesus's body, he prepares it and he wraps it along with Nicodemus and he buries Jesus in his own tomb. Joseph of Arimathea was rich and he followed Jesus. Jesus is not saying that only the poor can follow him. Zacchaeus, we talked about Zacchaeus earlier this year. Zacchaeus was a wealthy man. Jesus goes to his house and says, today salvation has come to this home. So Zacchaeus followed Jesus and was wealthy. Matthew, one of Jesus' own disciples, was a tax collector. It's very likely that Matthew had some wealth, certainly more than the other disciples. So you don't have to be poor to follow Jesus. Here's the second thing Jesus is not saying. Jesus is not saying having wealth is wrong. As I just mentioned, there are those who followed Jesus and had great wealth. In the Old Testament, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all men of great wealth. King Solomon was said to be the richest king in the world, and it was a gift from God. The Bible does not condemn wealth, and neither should we. The Bible does not uphold poverty as the pathway to righteousness, nor should we. If you go to Hebrews chapter 11, we reference that often, the great hall faith, hall of fame. The faith hall of fame includes people in there who were both poor and rich. So Jesus is not saying that you have to be poor to follow him, and he's not criticizing um, wealth. Some of you here and those listening, God has gifted you with wealth beyond most. And he's done this so that you can use those gifts to further his kingdom. What made the people in the faith hall of fame, whether they were rich or whether they were poor, what made them distinctive was not the amount of resources, was not amount the money they had in their bank accounts, but how they obediently used their opportunities to further God's kingdom. See, the issue is not about being rich, but it is about the attitude of our heart that is so concerning to Jesus. It's about the attitude in our hearts towards money that concerns Jesus. A familiar verse that Paul writes to his student in 1 Timothy, Paul says, it's the love of money. It's not money itself. It's not possessions. It's not wealth. But it's when we love that stuff. The love of money, it's the root of all evil. Paul goes on to say that for some people, Craving money, loving money, loving possessions, loving toys. They have wandered from the true faith and they've pierced themselves with many sorrow. Just a verse before that, Paul talks about the greatest wealth and he combines two things. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. And that's what Jesus was saying to the rich young ruler. The first thing, godliness is what Jesus addressed with the young man. Are you obeying my law? And the man said, yes, Jesus went to the root issue. And that was contentment. The man's possessions were more important. And Paul says it's godliness and contentment. Those two things together are great wealth. It reminds me of a story that I heard of two men that were at a party in the Hamptons. They were middle-aged or a bit older and one man says to the other, hey, see that young 25-year-old over there? He's a hedge fund man manager, and he has made more money at the age of 25 than you ever will in your entire life. 
And the man looks over to his friend and says, yeah, but he has something that I, that I have something that he never will. And the man, looking astounded, says, what is, what is it you have that he never will? And he said, that's enough. I have enough. It's contentment. I have contentment. It often surprises Christians when they discover how much the Bible actually talks about money. There are more than 2,300 verses on money, wealth, and possessions in the Bible. Jesus spoke about money roughly 15% of the time, and 11 of his 39 parables were in relation to possessions or wealth. It's one of his most talked about topics. So why would Jesus spend so much time talking about wealth, possessions, or money? One, because of the significant role that it plays in every one of our lives. Think of this, we invest most all of our days working in exchange for money, unless you're retired. But you've spent the majority of your life working for money. In a very real sense, if we're honest, our money represents us. How we use our resources reveals who we are. You've heard it said, show me your checkbook and I'll show you what your priorities are, what's important to you. It'll show your heart. Secondly, Jesus knew that our relationship with God would be deeply impacted by our relationship with money. See, if we worry too much about money, we won't trust God fully. And if we're chasing after money and wealth more and more and more, then it's doubtful that we're chasing after God and advancing his kingdom. I love what Martin Luther, 16th century theologian, Said that He said, there are three conversions a person must experience to be fully committed to Christ. Three conversions, Martin Luther said. A conversion of the heart, a conversion of the mind, and a conversion of the purse or a conversion of the wallet. God wants us to be content. God desires for us to be generous givers. Yet, we should give as not one out of formality or obligation but as an overflow of our love for him. Man once said there's three types of giving. I've mentioned this before. There's grudge giving, duty giving, and thanksgiving. And oftentimes when it comes to either giving to church or giving to things that advance the kingdom of God, we consider giving grudge giving. And what I mean by that is some of us give to God like we're forking over payment for our taxes to the IRS. It's grudge giving. You don't pay God taxes. Some of us give like duty giving, like we give to God like we're paying an electric bill. But hopefully you give out of joy and love to God, which is thanksgiving, recognizing that everything you have belongs to him. And it's an overflow because he has blessed you greatly. My wife and I's anniversary is Monday and we're going out tomorrow night and I have something special for her. And how many know it would not go over well if I said, honey, I got you this because it is my duty as your husband after being married for 24 years. Or if I said, it is out of obligation to you, I purchased this for you, happy anniversary. It would not be a good night in the Hannah house. Of course not. Why would I do that? Out of love, out of thanksgiving, from a heart that says, honey, I love you. I'm grateful to be married for you married to you. That's what God wants from us. So 
How much should I give is the question. I would say a better question is how much should I keep? And anytime I teach on something like giving like this or addressing our heart issues when it comes to money, wealth, possessions, I like mentioning that we don't teach tithing here at ACAC. For some of you that are new that maybe missed my sermon last year on that, you're scratching your head and going, what? We don't. Don't teach tithing here at ACAC. I'm not going to go into a whole other sermon on it, but we teach spirit-led giving. Let me share this verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. This kind of sums it up. Paul writes, you must each decide in your heart how much to give. He says, don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. I'm never going to stand up here. And if I ever do and make you feel pressure or guilty, I want you to tell me. Or at least email Pastor Ross. And he'll tell me. We don't guilt you into giving. But Jesus understands and he knew as he did with the rich young man that it's so easy for us to pursue wealth and possessions and that to have a grip on our heart. And he wants us to recognize that he has blessed all of us and he's given it and it's his. And so when we give, whether it be in an offering, whether it be to bungalow, whether it be to another nonprofit, whether it be to someone that you see who is in need, we should do those things. We do it out of the, out of the abundance of our heart, not the abundance of our checkbook. Our giving should cost us something. We must be diligent to prevent the temporary blessings of wealth to displace the permanent blessings of eternal life with God. Heavenly Father, we just pause to say thank you. I really pray that as we leave this place tonight, that all of us would be so grateful and we would recognize how blessed we are. The poorest person in this room the poorest person watching this video is blessed beyond measure. There's so many in this world that live on very little. And often every day we walk through life and we buy coffees and <laughs> we go out to eat and we watch shows on TV and we entertain ourselves and provide ourselves with lots of toys. And it's not that those things are bad, but the enemy can use them to distract us and they can become a God in our hearts. So I pray for those that are here. Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict that we would be a generous people, that we would see the needs around us and we would be willing to give because you have blessed us. And it would be our worship to you, our love to you. In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Hey, before I officially dismiss you, I do have one more announcement. I know it's been a lot today. Um, I don't want to assume, but many of you are familiar that in August, often uh, lead pastor here takes a sabbatical. Pastor Rock did that for many years, and I've been here two and a half years. But there are some of you who are fairly new, and you may not know that rhythm. So when I was hired two and a half years ago and began meeting with our elders, they said to me that um, we want to honor uh, what we did with Pastor Rock. Uh, we want you to take the month of August and to have a sabbatical. And it's not a time where I just go away and, and play and refresh, although there'll be some refreshing in that. But it's a time where I really pray. 
and I dive into God's word and do some strategic planning, oftentimes thinking about what the next year holds. And this next year, I believe, is going to be an amazing year for us. And so I just wanted you to know that you're not going to see me for, for a few weeks, um, but we're blessed with a tremendous staff. We're going to continue this series on He Said What. Pastor Ross will be preaching next weekend. Pastor Bryce is going to be a part of this series. Pastor Christian and Pastor Blaine. And then I'll be back the first part of September as we hit the pedal to the metal with the fall and kids go back to school. So I do covet and ask for your prayers. This is a time where I really, I said, Lord, I need to know. I need your wisdom. Um, What are you calling us to do? What are those spirit-led errands, the first marker of our DNA? What have you called us to do? And so I'm grateful for your prayers, but I wanted you to be aware of that. Would you stand as I pray as a dismissal? Lord, thank you for this time together and for your word that brings truth to us. May we represent you well as we leave this place. Bless every family that is here. Bless their children and their marriages. Bless them on their jobs. And thank you. Uh, for all that you do and provide for us in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you.